you are listening to the transforming india podcast jointly brought to you by the deepak and neeraj center on indian economic policies at columbia university and the times of india i am arvind panagaria director of the raj center and professor of economics at columbia my co-host on this podcast is professor praveen krishna he is a professor of international economics and business at johns hopkins university welcome praveen Hi Arvind, really delighted to join you for episode 19 of Transforming India podcast and our first episode of 2021. I'd like to start by wishing you and all of our listeners a happy, healthy and prosperous new year and to thank everyone for tuning into this podcast. The Transforming India podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and SoundCloud. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please go ahead and subscribe and follow it. on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud, whichever platform you choose for your podcast. A very happy new year to you too Praveen and also to our listeners. With various vaccines now becoming available, I am sure we can look forward to a better year ahead than the one we have just left behind. Thanks Arvind. The subject occupying the attention of Indian policymakers and the media is a recently enacted farm laws. enacted by parliament in september the laws have led to an agitation by farmers from punjab and to some degree haryana as well the agitation has already lasted more than a month given that there have been lots of claims counterclaims and confusion in the numerous debates that have been taking place in different forums let's dissect this subject carefully in this episode let me begin by giving our listeners an outline of how we plan to discuss the subject first we'll provide the historical background of how the agricultural produce marketing committees or the apmc regime came about second we'll discuss how this regime functioned in particular what features of the system led the central government to launch the first set of reforms third we'll go over the state level reforms that began with the central government initiated model apmc act of 2003 fourth we'll discuss the three recently enacted farm laws that are the focus of the protests fifth we'll turn to what we think is behind the current protests and dissect the arguments offered by the critics against these laws finally we'll explore possible solutions to the current conundrum that is an excellent way to unpack the subject praveen so let me begin with some historical background on the emergence of india's agricultural marketing regime as it existed till the beginning of the reforms in 2003 india's history of regulated markets in agricultural produce goes back to 1886 quite far back under the british rule at the time the british government had been concerned about the availability of pure cotton at reasonable prices to textile mills in manchester so it established the first regulated agricultural produce market in india this market is sometimes referred to as the karanja cotton market the first legislation on regulated agricultural produce markets came a decade later in the form of parar cotton and grain market act of 1897 this act empowered british residents in parar province to declare any place within their assigned district as market for purchase and sale 
of agricultural produce and form a committee to supervise the market. Bombay presidency passed a similar law known as Bombay Cotton and Market Act of 1927. Now, around this time, the British government also appointed the Royal Commission on Agricultural Marketing, which submitted its report in 1928. The commission expressed concern that existing marketing system did not serve the farmer interests with most sales taking place at the farm gate under distress and at low prices to discharge debts to money lender. Also, farmers lagged storage facilities, information on prices, and ability to bear risk. The existing marketing centers were subject to a variety of malpractices, including heavy marketing fees, absence of grading, charges for temple construction and pilgrimages, and cartelization by traders. The commission recommended, therefore, the establishment of regulated markets in all agricultural commodities in all provinces. Marketing committees overseeing these markets were to be under a single all-pervading provincial legislation. Half of the committee members were to come from cultivators with officials from the agricultural department of the province included in its composition as well. The commission further recommended that all existing markets, such as those run by local boards, be shut down simultaneously with the creation of the regulated markets. Very importantly, the commission recommended strict prohibition of a broker representing both buyer and the seller. Subsequent to the Royal Commission, provinces including Hyderabad, Central Province, Bombay and Punjab and princely states such as Mysore and Patiala also passed their APMC Acts. That's a rather fascinating history, Arvind, and one that few commentators in the media have spoken about. So would it be fair to say that at independence, India already had the APMC regime in place and that essentially the same laws, rules, and institutions governed agricultural marketing for 90 years? I mean, some reforms did happen beginning in 2003. But since the reforms did not advance very far, it is broadly correct that the regime recommended by the 1928 Royal Commission has governed the marketing of agricultural produce for 90 years. Frankly, I have often complained that the University Grants Commission or UGC and now defunct Indian Medical Council Acts of the 1950s are antiquated. But India's farmers have actually lived with an even older set of laws. After independence, the government passed more marketing laws. But that had to do largely with the formation of new states rather than any fundamental reform of the regulated markets, except on margins. As more states such as Andhra Pradesh, Rajasthan, Gujarat, Maharashtra, Haryana, Himachal Pradesh, Tamil Nadu, Goa, and others were formed after independence, they went on to pass their own laws. Three states, Kerala, Jammu and Kashmir, and Manipur, did not regulate agricultural markets at all. And Bihar had enacted an APMC law in 1960, but it repealed that law in 2006. Very interesting history, Arvind. And with that background, let us turn then to giving our listeners a brief introduction 
about how the system functioned from independence until 2003. Though the regulations vary across states, as well as over time within states, in broad terms, state-level APMC acts strictly regulated wholesale trade in most, if not all, agricultural commodities. Under these acts, each state divided the entire geographical area into several market areas, with each area managed by a state-constituted Agricultural Produce Marketing Committee, or APMC. In each of these marketing areas, the government created a market yard and one or more sub-yards, which are referred to as mundis and sub-mundis, respectively. It required that all wholesale trade and agricultural commodities within the area be conducted in these yards. By law, farmers were not allowed to sell their produce anywhere other than in the yard or subyard in their marketing area. An APMC-appointed commission agent in the yard or subyard would then negotiate the price with wholesalers licensed to buy the produce in the yard or the mandi. Once the produce was sold to a wholesaler, the wholesaler then sold it to a sub-wholesaler, who in turn sold it to the retailer, and the retailer finally sells it to the consumer. For a variety of reasons, this system, even though it's very elaborate, has not served farmer interests well. One problem has been that the marketing yards are far away from the farmers, and transporting the produce can be too costly to be financially viable for a large number of especially the small farmers. For instance, according to the 62nd report of the Parliament Standing Committee on Agriculture, Cooperation, and Farmers' Welfare, even as late as January 2019, there were only 2,332 yards and 4,298 subyards, which add up to about 6,630 markets nationwide. On average, each of these markets then covers an area of about 496 square kilometers, which is a lot. Praveen, there are other problems with the system as well. As time passed, the exact same abuses from which the 1928 Royal Commission had sought to free the farmer by replacing distressed sales at the farm gate and abuses in private markets by regulated markets came to characterize APMC markets with a vengeance. Entry barriers in the form of strict licensing of market participants allowed commission agents and wholesalers to collude to exploit the farmer by denying him the price he would receive in a free and competitive market. In a serious indictment of the system, the Parliamentary Standing Committee report that you just mentioned has stated that APMC markets have, and I quote, become hotbeds of politics, corruption, and monopoly of traders and middlemen, end of quotes. The report goes on to add, once again, I'm quoting, APMC markets across the country are not working in the interest of farmers due to various reasons, such as limited numbers of traders in APMCs, thereby reducing competition, cartelization of traders, undue deduction in the name of market fee, commission charges, etc., end of quote. Over time, Multiple fees at multiple points came to be charged in APMC markets. A lack of proper storage facilities has also remained a problem at most yards. Only 15% of the markets had any cold storage facilities in 2018-19. The result is that a significant part of the farmer produce rots at the yard each year. Grading of the produce being either absent or inadequate, the farmer lacks incentive to improve the quality of his produce. 
these factors combined with a long chain of intermediaries translate in the farmer receiving only a small fraction of the price paid by the final buyer. Arvind, it seems to me that the APMC system has led to three major problems. First, it has failed to bring farmers remunerative prices. And realization of better prices is probably the fastest way to bring some improvement in farmers' incomes from its currently abysmally low level. Second, though we often claim that the goods and services tax, or the GST, has turned geographically fragmented Indian markets into a single national market, this is far from true when it comes to agricultural output. In this sector, we have at least as many markets as there are market yards in the country, since there is little arbitrage of price taking place across them. Indeed, large interstate differences in prices of agriculture produce are common in India. Finally, agro-based downstream industries, principally food processing, have been victims of this system. This has held back our agro-based exports, as these industries often require produce of a given quality. But insofar as the APMC laws deny food processors the right to buy produce directly from the farmers, they're unable to ensure the quality of the produce that they process. Symmetrically, the absence of this link denies the farmer the opportunity to get an assured price from processors and exporters. All of this impedes the expansion of the market for farmers' produce. A related problem, though not entirely the result of the APMC system, is a lack of development of storage facilities for agricultural produce. India badly lacks warehouses and cold storage facilities, which poses a further obstacle to the development of downstream agro-based industries and exports. Praveen, this brings us to the third subject of the discussion, state-level reforms of the APMC system in the early 2000s. Recognizing the problem that we have just discussed, in the year 2000, the government of Prime Minister Atal Bihari Vajpayee began interministerial discussions on the reform of the state-level APMC acts. In 2003, based on these discussions, the government released the Model Agricultural Produce Marketing Committees Act of 2003. The government recommended that states enact the Model Act over the years. The Model Act contained nearly all provisions that the recent Farm Acts have implemented. Specifically, this act provided for, one, giving the farmer the right to sell produce to anyone, including wholesalers, retailers, consumers, and entities willing to engage in contract farming. Two, licensing private entities, including supermarkets, companies, and exporters to buy produce directly from the farmer. Three, establishment of private market yards. Four, contract farming, whereby the farmer and a potential buyer, including private processing companies and exporters of his produce, could have a prior contract on the price to be paid for produce of a specified quality. Five, single point levy of marketing fee in APMC yards. Six, replacement of licenses to market functionaries in APMC yards by registration. And finally, seven, improved infrastructure, including storage and facilities for grading, standardization, and quality certification of produce. Arvind, let me point out that all central governments since 2003 have tried to persuade state governments to adopt the model APMC Act of 2003. During these 17 long years, there have been as many as 20 states that amended their APMC Acts, with 17 of them notifying the associated rules and regulations. 
However, none of them has fully implemented the Model Act. Most states have implemented only a small subset of its main provisions. More importantly, the provisions have been applied to only a small subset of agricultural commodities. There was a clear frustration with the slow progress and a sense that India's farmers were being denied justice in order to protect the interests of a few powerful local interests. Indeed, as recently as 2019, the report on the Parliamentary Standing Committee on Agriculture, Cooperation, and Farmers' Welfare affirmed the, quote, urgent need for radical reform in states' APMC acts to provide fair compensation to farmers. To quote specifically from the report, it says that the committee observes that there is an urgent need for radical reform in the APMC Act in the country if we intend to provide justice to farmers. Remunerative pricing for the farmers cannot be ensured unless the number of marketing platforms for farm produce is enhanced and the functioning of APMC markets is made democratic and transparent. The committee appreciates the efforts of the government for reforms in the APMC market. However, the committee is surprised to note the lukewarm response of the state governments towards reforms in the APMC market. Let me also remind us that this statement comes from the Standing Committee as recently as December 2019. In the end, it is this frustration with states dragging their feet and the resulting denial of justice to farmers that has led the central government to use its constitutional powers to bring the three central laws first through ordinances and then their passage in parliament. Praveen, let me now get down to summarizing the key provisions of the three new laws. These were originally enacted through ordinances in June uh, 2020, and then the parliament went on to pass them in September 2020. The first law, known as the Farmers Produce Trade and Commerce Act, empowers farmers and all potential buyers of their produce to transact on mutually agreeable terms anywhere in the country. This law has four major benefits. First, by reducing the potential number of intermediaries, it promises more remunerative prices to farmers. Second, the new law will be especially beneficial to small farmers who find it difficult to take their produce to distant APMC markets. Potential buyers can buy their produce at the farm gate. Third, due to access issues, more than half of the sales transactions in agricultural produce involving farmers currently take place outside APMC yards. With the exception of a handful of these transactions, which may have been made legal by the state-level reforms following the 2003 Model Act, bulk of them are illegal and risk scrutiny and prosecution by APMC officials. The new law eliminates the prospect of such scrutiny and prosecution, thereby strengthening the bargaining power of the farmer. Finally, this law goes beyond the state-level APMC reform in eliminating fragmentation of markets. It will finally unify the markets in produce into a single market, not just at this level of the state, but also at the national level. The second law, the Farmers Agreement on Price Assurance and Farm Services Act, provides a legal framework for the farmer and the potential buyer to engage in a contract farming agreement. Under such an agreement, the buyer may agree to buy produce of a specified quality at a specified price from the farmer. He may even supply the farmer critical inputs such as seeds at previously agreed terms. 
contract farming already exists in 20 states, including Punjab, in select commodities. What the new law does is to extend it to all commodities and to the entire country, considerably simplifying the legal framework and provides greater protection to the farmer than she had under existing state laws. The third law restricts the use of the Essential Commodities Act of 1955 to emergencies, with emergencies precisely defined in the law. The law, known as the Essential Commodities Amendment Act, complements the other two laws. Conventionally, the Essential Commodities Act has allowed the governments at the center, as well as the states, to arbitrarily impose restrictions on the stocking of produce. This has discouraged the development of storage, including cold storage and large-scale processing. Any large-scale processor, including exporters, must be able to keep an adequate inventory of the produce it plans to process. With the ability to engage in contract farming to ensure quality of produce and to store it in adequate volume without fear of legal limits, large-scale processors are now more likely to emerge. That's a great summary of the three laws, Arvind. And let's now turn to the question of the ongoing protests against the farm laws. To understand the source of the discontent against the laws, the first question we need to ask is why the protests have come principally from one state, Punjab, and to a lesser degree, Haryana. Given the near absence of any type of agitation in the other states, it's reasonable, I think, to think that the that minimally the farmers in those other states do not see the three laws as a threat to their interests, and that most likely they expect to benefit from them along the lines that we've just discussed. The common concerns expressed by critics, such as the timing of the reform, that corporations might potentially exploit the farmer, and that there's been insufficient advanced groundwork, these criticisms would apply equally to farmers all over the country. Yet the fact that the protests have come principally from two states suggests that something other than these commonly expressed concerns is sort of driving this, and, and then the, the, the kind of the standard criticisms that we're hearing are perhaps not the real story. That is absolutely correct, Praveen. There is indeed something special about Punjab and Haryana. Rice and wheat account for the bulk of agricultural produce in these states. The central government procures a disproportionately large proportion of these grains at the lucrative minimum support price or MSP in the two states. For instance, in 2017-18, the latest year for which we have been able to access the most complete data, the central government procured as much as 88.4% of rice and 65.5% of wheat output in Punjab. Its procurement in Haryana for the two crops was approximately in the same range. On the other hand, the national average procurement was just 33.8% in rice and 30.9% for wheat. In states such as Bihar, Gujarat, Rajasthan, Tamil Nadu and West Bengal, procurement for either crop was less than 15% of the total output. One might ask, why does this procurement matter? The reason is that in APMC Mondays, where procurement takes place, Punjab and Haryana's governments collect substantial tax revenues. Commission agents, or Arthiyas as they are popularly known, in these states also earn handsome revenue in the form of commission fees. In Punjab, the state government collects 6% tax revenue on all procurement, which amounts to approximately 3,600 crore rupees, and commission agents earn 
another 1,600 crore rupees. The burden of the above market MSP, 6% tax revenue and 2.5% commission, which easily sums up to more than rupees 10,000 crore, falls squarely on the Indian taxpayer. Therefore, the commission agents as well as Punjab government would want to preserve status quo in APMC mandis. Arvind, there's, there's one further wrinkle here. Not only do the commission agents in Punjab often double up as farmers or come from farming families, they also exercise considerable clout over smaller farmers and wield a considerable amount of political power. The well-known journalist P. Sainath, who's no great enthusiast for reforms, describes this very graphically in a 2018 article. To give a sense for what he says to our listeners, let me quote him directly. In his article, he writes, Arthias are commission agents, a link between farmers and buyers of their produce. They arrange for the auction and delivery of harvested crop to the buyers. They're also money lenders with a long history in that trade. In recent years, they've emerged as input dealers as well, all of which means that they wield great control over farmers in the state. Sainath further states that the Arthias are also politically powerful. They count members of the Legislative Assembly among their brethren. In July last year, they honored the Chief Minister Amrinder Singh with the title of Fakre Kwam, the pride of the community. Local media termed the event a mega felicitation function. It came soon after the Chief Minister had said that it would be difficult to waive the debt owed by farmers to the Arthias. This is very interesting, Praveen. On the surface, it may seem that so long as the central government assures that it will continue to procure at MSP as before, none of this should matter. But the underlying fear of the Punjab government and the Arthias is that the government may decide to procure rice and wheat outside APMC Mandis directly from farmers, thereby depriving them of the current assured flows of tax revenues and commission fees. This is the only rational explanation I can think of for the ongoing agitation. You're right, Arvind. For example, some critics have made the argument that private marketplaces, where tax and commission agent fees would not apply, would drive the APMC mundis out of business, leaving the farmer at the mercy of corporate buyers. But this argument is really a specious one, since APMC mundis also have the option to eliminate the tax they collect for the state government and to do away with the commission agent's fees. Indeed, APMC mandis have a huge advantage over any private alternatives that might emerge, given that their land does not accrue any cost and that the state government is actually backing them. Furthermore, as we know from the failed experience with privatization of public sector enterprises, driving the government out of an activity it does not want to exit is a tough nut to crack. Praveen, let me add that the existing evidence wholly contradicts critics who raise the specter of large corporations exploiting farmers. We have the well-known example of milk, which Nestle and Hetson have been buying from hundreds of thousands of small farmers with no complaints of such exploitation. In Bihar, which did away with the APMC regulation in 2006, private companies have been active in grain markets as well without complaints of exploitation. Indeed, these companies usually buy produce from traders with small farmers often unaware even of their existence. Speaking of Bihar, Arvind, some critics have argued that the end to the APMC system has ended up hurting farmers there. The first and most important point to make here is that what the current farm laws do is very different from the reform in Bihar. 
The farm laws leave the APMC mandis intact while adding new options for farmers. As such, if the APMC mandi works well for certain farmers, those farmers can continue to sell their produce over there. For farmers who feel that they do not get a fair price for their produce, the law creates new avenues. The second point to note is that since the repeal of the APMC Act, agriculture in Bihar has grown much faster than in Punjab or even Haryana. At least in rice, even the gap between the MSP and market price has also declined. Only in wheat has this gap arguably widened or at least not declined on average. One final critique worth mentioning, Praveen, concerns the timing of the reform. Here, criticisms have come from both sides. One set of critics says that the enactment of the reform at a time when people were dealing with the economic fallout of COVID-19 crisis, the reform added to their anxiety. The other set of critics says that since there was no crisis in agriculture at this moment, the government should not have rushed into such a big bang reform. Both criticisms are questionable. Strictly speaking, the COVID-19 pandemic has had an extremely limited impact on agriculture. This is supported by the fact that this was the only sector that grew at its trend growth rate between March and September 2020. Moreover, the criticism seems to be an afterthought since it has only been offered following the launch of the agitation. The three reforms had been announced through ordinances in June 2020 and were then enacted into laws by Parliament in September 2020. No critic spoke at the time that the reform should wait until COVID-19 passes. Finally, labor law reforms were also enacted in September 2020, but critics have not made COVID-19 argument against them, presumably because they have not been subject to agitation. With respect to the argument that the Big Bang reform should not have been announced because there was no crisis, I offer three counterpoints. One, given the long history of efforts at these reforms, the current round represents continuity rather than a sudden break in policy. Two, if one accepts the critics' argument, one would be opposed to several of the reforms in the past six years, insolvency and bankruptcy code, the goods and services tax, labor law reforms, and the large cut in the corporate tax were all big bang reforms. And finally, have farmers not been in perpetual crisis? How long must they wait to get justice? All right, Arvind, now that we've dissected the major criticisms against the farm laws, Let's maybe briefly discuss possible solutions. I fear that I myself don't see any easy solution to the current standoff between the protesters and the government. If the government agrees to repeal the laws, it would send a negative signal. It would be a concession to powerful interests from at most two, not to relatively rich states, to the detriment of the welfare of the much poorer farmers in the remaining states. It would also send a signal that any group that can bring out 10, 20,000 demonstrators and occupy key highway intersections for an extended period can have its way, even when it happens to negate laws that an elected government enacted using constitutional powers. Likewise, Praveen, the government is in no position to deliver on the other remaining demands by agitating farmers. They are asking that the government enforce MSP on all purchases, including those by private parties. But if MSP is enforced on all purchases, there will not be enough buyers to buy all available grain. The only way this can be enforced is if the government buys all supplies that private agents do not buy at MSP, which would place yet greater burden on the Indian taxpayer. Moreover, 
the government would have no use for the grain it buys since its stocks are already overflowing at the current level of procurement. That's right, Arvind. And one possible option, I suppose, would be to exempt Punjab and Haryana from the three laws. But the difficulty in doing so is that this cannot be done without offering the same option to the other states. That option is offered given the past history of local vested interests having obstructed the reforms, it's highly likely that many other states would also opt out of the laws. This would, of course, be a grave injustice to the small and marginal farmers whom these laws are expected to benefit. So it's not clear at all that the government has this middle path available to it either. Well, Praveen, for now, that is the last word on farm laws for us. It is too bad that we have to end the episode on a pessimistic note. But let us hope the protesters and the government will be more imaginative and be able to forge a compromise that would be satisfactory to both sides and also do justice to India's small farmers. Indeed, Arvind. Let me thank our listeners for tuning in. Signing off, this is Praveen Krishna. And this is Arvind Panagaria on the Transforming India podcast, produced by Atisha Kumar, research scholar at Columbia University, and edited by Rebecca Megalwari at Insights at Columbia University. Thank you for listening.